Was uh, anybody else sweating last night watching that Ohio State game? I definitely was not off my couch screaming. That was not me. I absolutely not. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. My name is Michael, and we will be continuing in our series, The Life of David. And last week, as we are learning about the greatest king of Israel, we start at the beginning of a story that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he is anointed or he is chosen as the man that will step into King Saul's future role. And King Saul is still the king, but David is going to be the next in line. And not everyone knows that, maybe David and his family. But uh, today, in the story that we're talking about that we're probably all familiar with, we're going to see why he was chosen. We're going to see David, David's heart for God's glory. And that's the story of David and Goliath. And so just uh, before we get into the passage, let me set the scene a little bit. The Philistines are the common enemy of Israel, and they are on kind of the, the western side of Israel. And one day they decide to attack. They, this is not just like a mutual, hey, let's fight. They invade Israel. And so King Saul doesn't want them to go any further, and he's saying, all right, not going to happen. So he gets his army, and he meets them at the Valley of Allah. And the Valley of Allah is kind of an S-shaped valley that has mountains on both sides. And so they face off with this valley dip in the middle. And on either side, on a mountain, you have the Philistine army. And on the other side, on this mountain, you have the Israelite army. And you have this showdown of two groups. And verse 4 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is where we get into our story and we meet uh, the man of the hour, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. All right, from just this verse alone, two things I want to point out. One is that he's referred to as a champion. This term champion isn't used elsewhere in the Bible other than uh, in, in this part. It's actually a term that brings multiple words together. It means a man between. A man between. So Goliath is the man between the two armies, and he is representing the Philistines fighting this battle so that they don't have to. That's kind of the idea there. And we'll come back to that word champion in a little bit. But notice what all of us are familiar with, his, his height. It says that he's six cubits in a span. A cubit was uh, generally about 18 inches, kind of from your elbow to your fingertips. It's normally how they measured it. And so this puts him at about nine feet Nine inches. He can dunk. <laughs> He's tall. And maybe some of us read this going, yeah, nine, nine. Yeah, no shot in the world. But there's some evidence, even from Goliath's hometown alone, it says from Gath, archaeology has dug up some um, just huge architecture that's seemingly made for bigger people. <laughs> and there's armor that would only fit guys of this size and even paintings that they found. To, to illustrate, hey, people have been this tall. And even in modern history, we have someone that was close to that height. Uh, about 100 years ago, a guy named Robert Wadlow, he was uh, 8 feet 11 inches. I think he was from Illinois or something like that. And he died at 22 years old and still growing. Like he would have cracked 9 feet if he had not died. And he suffered, or not suffered, I don't made the wrong word. He had a condition <laughs> called acromegaly, which uh, I don't know much about, but Google tells me that it's a 
tumor or a growth on the pituitary gland and it pushes against it and it produces more growth hormone and so they just grow and grow and grow and grow. And that's what happened with Robert and maybe people like Goliath had that same thing that we just know a little bit about more today. But his height alone is scary. The Bible is gonna go on to tell more about his, his armor and his details, but can you guys imagine how tall this guy is? No, I didn't think so. Okay, well, I have Jeremy to come help me real quick. And uh, we have Goliath, all right? And he is nine feet, nine inches exactly. And thank you, Jeremy, and also Tina, Brian, and Ryan for kind of making this happen. Uh, I'm not the shortest guy in the world, but do I not look like his little nephew, just kind of, you know, <laughs> like along for the ride? You know, this is a big, tall guy. And he does look intimidating, does look scary. But you know what? I think we can maybe make it just a little bit scarier. Hold on. Let me just add this real quick. Okay. There we go. All right. We got Pastor Kevin just right on there. All right. Now, tell me, if you're going out to war and you see that coming at you, yeah, I'm running, right? I'm gone. No, thank you. He would just, yeah. Uh, that looks awesome. Um, so his height alone, huge. Verses five through seven continue this tale of the tape that tells even more of how intimidating he is. Verse five says he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. That's what he's carrying around with him. It said he had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin, so just a short sword, slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. So his spear, the end of it made of iron, was 15 pounds. Like an Olympic shot put, 16 pounds. So this is what this guy is throwing around, not to mention the weight of the actual pole to kind of counterbalance. And I mean... And, and then it says he had a shield carrier that walked before him. Almost 10 feet tall, not only is he big, not only does he have the equipment better than everybody else, he is strong. And the Old Testament, the way this story uh, is, is laid out for us, it's not normal. The Bible doesn't usually go into this much detail about physical appearance and equipment and kind of setting the scene this way, but they do here. And that's to prove one point is that this is one bad man. Like this is a scary dude. Nobody wanted to face him. If you were to attempt to fight him, you are outmuscled, outgunned. He has better equipment, more experience. And not only is he tall, strong, big, scary, He's mean, right? He, he comes out and between the two armies and issues a challenge. He says, anybody that wants to face me, like bring somebody out. Why do we need our whole, both of our armies to fight? 1v1, if you kill me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill your guy, you be our slaves. Send somebody out, let's fight. He issues this challenge and then verse 11, this is the response, when Saul who's still king, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
this guy is intimidating, but who's he talking to? He's speaking to God's people who God has placed in this land to show the rest of the world who he is. That they should remember that, okay, God's got our back. But they don't. It says the entire army froze. And King Saul, their leader, their king, the Bible tells us that he was head and shoulders above every other Israelite, which probably means he was the strongest and therefore having the best chance against Goliath. Like he should have been the one saying, all right, I'll give it my best. But he's not. He doesn't budge. And it's because the leader is fearful. Everyone else in the army is doing the same thing. They hear this challenge but do nothing. And this went on for 40 days. This wasn't just one challenge. For 40 days in a row, the armies would line up and Goliath would come out and say, hey, send somebody out, let's fight. The, the number 40 in the Bible is often usually represented with testing. For example, when the, the Israelites, they left Egypt, they were in the wilderness being tested for 40 years. Or Jesus, when, uh, before he started his ministry, he was tempted in the wilderness. He was fasting for 40 days. Here is a, we have a similar situation. that They're facing Goliath, this challenge, for 40 days. It's another test. And the test is, would they trust God? And it doesn't look good. It's pretty bleak. And we go to verse 12. Now David. Bible's saying, don't forget, there's a guy that we just talked about last chapter who will be your future king. And they're connecting chapter 17 to 16 of what we talked about last week. And we, we know that David was chosen as the next king. And from the time he was chosen to the battle with Goliath, a couple years had passed, but he's still not king yet. And we find out a little bit more about Saul that uh, the end of 16 says that he kind of begins to lose his mind a little bit. Like he's good one moment and not so great the other. Says that an evil spirit was tormenting him. And his servants, they recommended music. They're like, hey, Saul, what if, you know, we just played some music for you and maybe that would help? And uh, I know a guy. I know a guy. He's... He's a musician, he's a warrior, he's well-spoken, he's handsome. He's kind of talking him up. And Saul goes, all right, go get him. A servant is sent to Jesse, David's dad, and says, your son is requested to be working for King Saul, and that's what he does. He starts to play music for him, that uh, David becomes his on-demand Spotify, that whenever he wants music, he plays him the lyre. So if Saul doesn't feel so great, the music would help him feel better. And Saul began to love David. The Bible makes a point of that. And he even became his armor bearer um, when he wasn't playing music for him. So David has a job with Saul and with his dad at home, shepherding sheep. And then in chapter 17 with Goliath, as most of us probably know how this story plays out, David, our soon-to-be hero, this is how he enters the scene. Verse 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news to them. So David is a part-time shepherd, part-time musician, part-time Grubhub cheese delivery boy. Like, 
their hero, he's there to deliver cheese. Think about that. And that's how he enters the battlefield. But that's his job. So it says that he left the next morning. He left his sheep in good care with one of his uh, co-workers. And it says he got to Israel's camp for the, or on the 40th day just as they line up in formation for the 40th time. And then he went to talk to his brothers. Verse 23. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the man who stands in between, Philistine from Gath named Goliath was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. David talking to his brothers and hears Goliath say his usual disrespectful spiel. He doesn't like it. So he's going around and talking, but think about this. 40 days have passed Still, nobody's making a move. Nobody is bold enough to face Goliath. The only thing that's changed is that somewhere along the line, King Saul has uh, tried to motivate his army and said, if anybody goes out to fight this man, I'll make it worth your while. I will give you uh, riches. I'll make your family tax-free in Israel. And you can marry my daughter. So he's saying, you go out and kill this man, you get money, security, and a girl, all if you go take him down. And David is going around talking to all these people saying, wait a minute, is, is that really the reward? Is this true? Like, what's going on? Why is no one going out there? Because here's what's on his mind, verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? He sees the underlying issue here that everyone else is focused on, man, he's, he's making fun of us. He's taunting us. David's going, no, he's taunting God. Like, is nobody going to step up and take him on? Is nobody going to do anything about this? Who does he think he is? And even with the purest of intentions, David's heart and motives are questioned by his own family. Verse 28 says, now Eliab, if you remember him from last week, he was the oldest son who they thought he would have been king because he kind of fits the mold a little more. His oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger burned against David and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wicked of your heart. You've come down in order to see the battle. His older brother is saying, David, what are you doing? Why are you here? Like, I, okay, I know why you're here. I know you're evil, you're arrogant, you just want to see the action. Like, that's what you're doing here, you're nosy. And by the way, who did you even leave your sheep with? David, you got responsibilities back home. You need to make sure they're taken care of. And all this anger towards David is probably stemming from an embarrassment himself of saying, you know, hey, we can't handle this problem. Why are you here bugging me? And we also see why he wasn't chosen to be king, Right? Like his heart, his motive, he's not in the right place. But one thing I want to point out just very quickly, something that we can walk away with, is that when we step out in faith, as David is about to do, he's going to do something that no one else is trusting God enough to make happen. When we do that, there's often someone around us to discourage you. Not every time, 
but there often can be, and sometimes it can begin with those closest to you. That David didn't have to look far to be put down for trying to honor God. He didn't have to look far for somebody to question his motives and go, why are you doing this? Oh, you think you're better than us. That's why. The same thing may happen to us that we may be misunderstood, assigned wrong motives or intentions. But notice how everything that Eliab said to David, it wasn't factual. Like he had no truth to it. He's assuming everything. Oh, I know why you're here. I know your heart. You probably left your sheep alone, didn't you, even though he took care of his sheep. Like all these things were not true, and we should always be open to constructive criticism. But I think David did something very wise here. When he realized that it wasn't worth his time, it says he moved on. The Bible says that he turned away and kept going. And so much so that he talked to so many people that he eventually made enough of a ruckus that King Saul heard. King Saul then called him over, and David walks up to the king and says, Hey, don't worry. I'll fight him. And we don't know for sure, but I'm guessing they were laughing. I'm guessing people around were going, Yeah, okay, like, not gonna happen. Saul's saying, I love you, kid, but no way. You're a youth, which is just someone who's not 20 yet, maybe a late teenager. You're a youth. This guy's been a warrior. Since a youth, like you stand no chance. And David's probably thinking in his mind, all right, well, if experience is what he, want, what he wants, I'll give it to him. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant, just talking about himself, was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him, rescued it from his mouth, and when he rose up against me, I seized him by, the, by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has both killed the lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. That's kind of a manly thing to do, right? He said he's saving his sheep, not just from small animals, a lion and a bear. Grab his sheep, runs, he attacks them, grabs them by the beard, beats them down, kills them, saves his animal. There's a, I thought about showing it, but you guys can go watch it on your own time. There's a video of a Florida man who, I don't know why so many videos start with person from Florida or Florida man, but they got a bunch of news down there. The, but there's a guy walking around some water with his puppy and a baby alligator, I don't know, maybe this big, not, not, not too huge, but a baby alligator comes and grabs the puppy, takes it into the water, but then the guy goes after it. Have you, have you seen this? Some of you have maybe. Uh, but this guy wastes no time and you see him in the water picking up the alligator and like prying open the jaws to get the puppy out. The puppy ends up being fine and he doesn't lose any fingers somehow. Uh, and the most impressive part, he never loses his cigar. Like, it's, it's there the whole time. It's crazy. He even goes in the water and up. Uh, but that's like a bold move, right? And I was even reading some comments on that YouTube page uh, or on the video, and somebody was like, man, this is a true dog owner. You should only own a dog unless you're prepared to do this. And I'm like, 
looks like I'm not owning any more dogs because I'm not risking my hand for, uh, for a puppy. Sorry, it's just not me, okay? But David, he would have. He's risking his life to save his sheep, not from a baby crocodile, from lions and bears. Like he has some fighting instincts in him. But notice that even as he tells this story, his primary confidence isn't his, in his own ability. He's not saying, Saul, I can do this. I'm, I'm experienced. Like I've done this plenty of times. He'll be no different. His confidence is in God. He says, God delivered me from the bear. God rescued me from the lion. God will rescue me from this guy. He is taunting God. And he had heard stories of Joshua and Moses, how God led them and protected them and fought for them in battle. And also, David knew that God had chosen him to be the next king. So he knows that God is going to keep his word and that he's powerful enough to fulfill that promise. And so David isn't just going forward, risking his life based off, ah, I hope things will work out, like God's probably got my back. He is confident in God and what God has said, that it's in his word, and that should be the same for us, that any faith in God always rests on his word in Scripture that we want to bank on what he's already told us. And if God has said it, we can rest in that. And David knew that, and that's why he was faithfully able um, to take this step. And so we finally convince Saul. Saul says, all right, go for it. May the Lord be with you. Saul even tries to help, and he gives him his own armor and helmet and a sword. David tries it on, and uh, the Bible doesn't say it's too big for him, David wasn't like the smallest guy around. He was pretty decent size. But it says he wasn't used to it. And so he's kind of, you know, probably swinging the sword and fitting the stuff. He goes, ah, can't do it. This isn't, don't feel right. I'm not used to these things. He lays them aside and he goes to grab what's familiar. He grabs a shepherd's stick, uh, chooses five smooth stones from the brook, puts them in his pouch, and then also a sling. And a sling... Um, just as he's doing that, a few things. A sling is not a toy. Like, we, that's maybe how we view it, but if someone knew how to use it, it is a dangerous weapon. It was either a long strip of leather or rope with a pouch in the middle. And if somebody trained consistently, I was reading that they were able to hit targets up to 200 yards away accurately. And when you swung it fast enough, it could get going 75 to 100 miles an hour. It's fast. That's far, and that's accurate. And not only that, but the rocks that they chose to, to put in there and, and, and hit people with, they were normally like two to three inches in diameter. And so that's like a baseball, but it's not made of cork, yarn, and leather. It's a rock. Like, it's coming at you fast, accurate, and it's, I mean, David knew what he was doing. He was experienced with this weapon. But not only that, something that's kind of interesting to me is he chose five stones. Some of us know what happens, right? He only needs one, but why does he take five? And in my opinion, I think it's because David is faithful, he trusts God, but he's also not dumb. <laughs> like, he doesn't know how this battle's gonna play out. He's not confident in the fact that, man, God will help me kill him on the first swing. 
He doesn't know that. He knows that God is going to show up, but he's realizing that he still needs to do his part. It's the same for us, that we can trust God and we should trust God to work and move in our life, but it doesn't mean that all effort and obedience is removed from our plate either, that we want to be prepared for whatever comes our way, just as David was. And so David's ready, and it says he enters the valley. Verse 41, we'll read kind of their uh, pre-fight speeches. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds and beasts that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. That's a speech, ain't it? (laughs) David's ready. And he makes sure that everyone is crystal clear, hey, whose battle this is. But as he walks forward, Goliath is, he's offended. He's like, wait a minute, I've been yelling at you for 40 days and you send this pretty boy to come fight me? Like what, what is going, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He is cocky and he is prideful. And what we're gonna see very literally is that pride comes before the fall. And his pride is showcased as he is, taunting and cursing and blaspheming God. Not just the army, but the living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And maybe some of you know, but it talks about it in Leviticus 24, that in God's law, there was a punishment, a severe punishment for cursing and blaspheming God. Anyone know what that is? Maybe someone said it. Stoning. I wonder if that will come into play here. But enough talking. The fight begins, Goliath draws near, and David ran. Verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag, took from it a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, so that he fell on his face to the ground. And I didn't try this first hour, so this is a test, so it might be loud, but Goliath, what happens? He is dead. Says he falls face down on the ground, And the next verse says, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine, killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And you can almost picture this scene As a once confident Philistine army, it's followed with deafening silence 
as their champion, as their warrior falls, that David goes over, uses Goliath's own sword, takes his head, and what's followed after that is probably the sounds of fleeing footsteps. Philistines, they run. But then, realizing what's going on, the Israelite army, they have this surge of confidence, right? And it probably is a giant roar as they charge them, follow them into the valley. And we don't know how many, but they kill many of the Philistines after Goliath goes down. And it says the Israelite army, they return to their camps, to the Philistine camps, and they plunder them. David was not joking around when he says that this is the Lord's battle. The giant falls, and the underdog is the victor. And so we know the story. We've just read the story. But I think we can apply a few things. And one thing in particular I want us to notice is how the two main people in Israel, Saul and David, how they viewed the same problem differently. That Saul, when he saw Goliath, or his, this big obstacle in his life, he was looking at it from a physical perspective. That he was comparing his own strength and his own weapons and his own might against Goliath's and realized, okay, well, I'm outmatched. I got nothing. And so he was fearful. And that's what fear is in, even in our lives. It's misplaced faith. His faith was not in God. His faith was in himself. And when he realizes that he is not enough and he's outgunned, outmanned, he's fearful. And that happens for any of us, that when we place our faith in our power, in our money, in our influence, in our ability to control a situation or to have just a comfortable life, if our faith is in that, something will come across our path that's too much for us. And fear is the natural result. But David doesn't think that way. He saw things uh, from a different angle, that he realized he was not capable, but God was, that he trusted him. And David wasn't focused on the fact that Goliath was huge compared to him, but that Goliath was small compared to God. And when we have, quote unquote, giants in our life, it almost seems sometimes like the major battle is intimidation, right? It's the what ifs, it's the unknowns, it's the how is this gonna work out? Like, I don't, even if I were to try to make things better, I don't even know if it's possible. But what I wanna challenge us with is some of us need to stop believing that God can't change things. Like, stop believing that things will never get better. Stop thinking that God can't do it. And he's not obligated to. He may never heal this part of your life or fix things or you know, remove that sinful desire or whatever it is. God is not obligated to do it, but we don't even know what's possible until we let him fight and use his strength instead of ours. This moment for David changed everything. This set the trajectory for his life for the rest of the book, as we're gonna find out, and it, this moment defined so much for him. And it's all because of one bold step of faith and one rock. And how about for us, instead of feeling hopeless or just, man, things are never going to get better about our problems, what if we move forward in faith 
and give God some room to work. David used one rock. Like, we don't know what God can use with one phone call, with one humble apology. We don't know what God can do with one conversation, with one uh, time of you sharing your faith with somebody, with one act of generosity. We don't know. It might take one, might take five. But either way, our job is not to evaluate and go, yeah, that's too big, I can't do it. Our job is to go, I'm gonna pray like crazy and ask for God's strength and trust in him and cling to what he has told me to be true. Either way, our job is to be faithful. And sometimes it may feel like we're the only ones doing it right, that we're the only ones in a situation trying to honor God. That's definitely how David felt. Nobody did it. In fact, everyone thought David was crazy for going out there. But even though we don't have someone next to us, we have someone in us, and I feel like we just need to remember that sometimes. That if you are a believer, God has given you the Holy Spirit that dwells in your body, that you are a temple for God, that has promised to lead you and guide you and strengthen you and lead you in a way that is down a path of glorifying him. That we don't want to focus just on man, how improbable that is, and it's probably going to be that way for the rest of my life. Don't focus on that, but realize that man, we have God in us and with us. John 15 says that we can do nothing apart from him. So why in the world would we try to tackle our issues or our problems in life without God? He says we, you can't do it. I can't do it. But we can when we abide and cling to him. And that's how we go through life. And one thing I want to make sure that you understand of what I'm not saying is that what I'm not saying is if you just trust in God, he will protect you 100% of the time. Nope, not true at all. There will be pain, and God doesn't promise us a perfect life. As Christians, we are not invincible, situationally or physically. But being a Christian does mean that when we go through these times, nothing can take away what's most important to us. That our confidence, knowing that these problems, whatever we face, they can injure us, they can wound us, they can hurt us, whether it's words from another person or physically or illness or anything, but they can't take our eternity and our salvation. That's the confidence that we have. And we can learn a lot from this story and apply it to our lives, but the greatest emphasis that we see is that it previews our salvation that actually happens a thousand years after David. That David, who is a lowly shepherd and a very unlikely hero, does what Israel cannot. So he steps out as a representative or a champion of the Israelite army steps in between them and their enemy to save them from death. And hopefully that sounds a little familiar and reminds us of someone else. That Jesus, who also uh, was an unlikely hero, he looks lowly, but in a time of need is the hero that we are desperately needing. And Jesus does what we cannot. That he lives a perfect life completely sinless, and is therefore qualified to be our champion, our representative, to step in between us and our enemy 
to save us from not just physical death, but eternal death. See, in this story, as much as we would love to believe it, we are not David. We are not the hero. In fact, we're the, we're the army off to the side, incapable of taking down that enemy. And our greatest Goliath is something that Jesus has already won, has already defeated, that he has conquered our greatest giant. And so what we do when we realize this is we respond in faith. That if you haven't made that decision to realize I am incapable, this problem of me being sinful and being, and I'm missing God's standard and I deserve an eternity in hell because God rightly should punish me for me rebelling against him my entire life. When we realize that and realize that we are incapable, but Jesus has gone forward. He is our champion, our representative, died on the cross, took God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. Died, rose three days later. And the Bible says that he is our only hope. He is our only solution. And when we place our faith, our trust in him and him alone to save us and to pay for our sins, that's when true life begins. And we gain eternal life and we are forgiven and have this right standing with God. That's first and foremost what we get from the story of David and Goliath. But from that, then once we realized, okay, Jesus has already claimed the victory over my biggest giant that I'll ever have in my life, which is sin and death, then we can know that every battle we face, we fight from the victory that Jesus has already claimed for us. That we see our problems differently, that we attack our problems differently, that we're not just in despair about how tough things are. We have a God that we can cling to his promises and fight with his strength. That we don't go through something and go, all right, God's gonna fix it 100%, I'm confident. We're confident in his promises, in his word. And what does his word say? He says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he will not forsake us or leave us. That he has given us strength, that his faithful love endures forever, that God will provide in what we need. And I feel like we just need to be reminded of that. That we see and attack our problems differently by clinging on to God's promises. So my question this morning is, how are we fighting? Are you letting things in your life, are you giving them more power than they really deserve? Or are you actually trusting God to say, God, I don't know what's gonna happen. You don't owe me anything, but I'm gonna move forward in faith and obey you. And whatever your word says, I'm gonna hold on to it because that's all I have and pray like crazy that God will change things and trust in him to move in not only other people's lives and in your situation, but in your own heart. Because another promise that we cling to is that God will work all things for the good of those who love him to conform us more like his son Jesus. That if we look more like him at the end of it, it's worth it. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That these trials, these giants, these problems that we face, it produces endurance. And when we have that perspective, when we have that confidence, that's how God wants us to live. And so we can live like that's true, that Jesus has already claimed the victory over sin and death. And because of that confidence, we can live in a way that's different than the world.
Let's go ahead and pray and, and just thank God for, for his son. God, you have already won the victory over our greatest enemy, sin and death. God, you have defeated by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins because we could not. God, we are hopelessly fallen short that we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve forgiveness or mercy, but you offer it to us. And because of that, because you have already won, God, everything else we face as we go throughout life, we have a confidence that changes how we live, that it won't shake us, God, even when problems come. There's no reason to worry. There's no reason to fear because we know, God, that you're on our side, that you are bigger than any problem we face. You are better than any other desire. God, you are stronger than any enemy that will ever come our way, and you are greater as you reign supreme, and we know that Jesus is king. And I pray that we would just get that in our hearts and live that way and just have a different perspective as we go through life, God. Our confidence is not in our abilities, our power, our influence, or just how good things are going in life. Our confidence is in you. Help us to live like that's true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.